brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit Welcome to the Bad Days Crime Podcast. I'm Janelle and I have Vicky in Stitches. I'm Vicky. I'm in Stitches. I'm oh glad I could entertain at least one person today. I was like, I don't today. know what you are going for right now, but you're being real weird. I am constantly really weird. It could have something to do with the copious amounts of caffeine I've been consuming. Are you, vi- are you vibrating? Is I your body always vibrating? on a higher level, man. <laughs> um, well, welcome to the show, guys. <laughs> or something. I don't or know Or something. Anymore. <laughs> yes. Uh, how are you doing today, Janelle? I'm alive. <laughs> you sound so Barely disappointed. alive. Yeah. Oh, my God. I'm just thinking about all the homework I have to do after we leave. Same, girl. <laughs> same. Oh, my gosh. Um, well, we have a great show for you today. If this is your first time listening, a special hello to you. We are going to head over to the newsroom. Our news today comes from CBC. Canada, you know, Canada Broadcasting (laughs) Company from Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, where people are just trying to stay warm right now. Mm -hmm. To that end, uh, police were called to a break in at a vacant home. When they got there, they found two people unresponsive inside and a strong smell of natural gas. Uh The man and the woman, both in their 40s, had attempted to steal a furnace from the vacant home when they accidentally caused a gas leak. Yeah, you got to cap that off, bud. (laughs) (laughs) 
There had been reports of like the strong smell of natural gas in the neighborhood uh, by the time that the police got there. And they said that the gas feed had become dislodged, caused the leak, and then knocked out the two would-be thieves. You literally have to put a cap on it. I'm not even kidding. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and it surprised me how quickly that it just like knocked them out. I guess I've never been around that much natural gas, but like if your face is right up against it after you freaking unhook it, yeah. And you take one deep breath one before you main lift the line thing up. to the dome of yeah. natural gas. <laughs> um once they regained consciousness, they were seen by medical professionals. The man and the woman were released without charges and the gas leak was fixed. Very Canadian end to mm-hmm. <laughs> to the uh to the story. So if you're stealing a furnace don't um first of all but also cap your gas yeah maybe <laughs> we are going to move on to netflix and kill which this week is an hbo and kill because mm-hmm. we haven't actually recorded an episode in a minute mm-hmm. we have not been able to talk about the way down have we talked about the way down i don't think so no. <laughs> the way down god greed and the cult of gwen shamblin mm-hmm. the hair on think, this woman i think i mentioned it but i yeah. don't think we i think we mentioned it, it mm-hmm. in being excited for it to come out yes mm-hmm. um so this is the way down is a hbo documentary that looks at the remnant fellowship church and its leader gwen shamblin lara starting as a diet guru sent from god Gwen Shamblin goes on to found a church with allegedly restrictive rules and cult-like practices. She also faces several allegations of carefully curating her image and portraying like this very specific lifestyle. She didn't do a very good job of that. Yeah. (laughs) Um, If you have ever seen pictures of this woman, the hair. It's just, I understand the premise of the higher the hair, the closer to God. Yes. But like, this was bad yeah bad hair and it's funny because they pointed it out in the documentary too but when you look at this footage of her from like way back when she started the way down workshop mm-hmm. and to her like starting remnant fellowship her hair just gets bigger just and bigger over the years like right? it's so bad it's almost like jesus is lifting it up it's so bad it's <laughs> a miracle you up. <laughs> you're welcome <laughs> oh, oh my god um now We'll never hear from Gwen Shamblin about her thoughts on this documentary. Because she did. <laughs> because she is dead. Yeah. Uh, so she, along with six church leaders, including her husband and son-in-law, died on May 29th, 2021, after her private jet crashed into Percy Priest Lake shortly after takeoff. Remnant Fellowship Church has since been taken over by her daughter, who... There's a whole thing there. Did you have a chance to watch this one? I did. Okay. Mm-hmm. So there's like a whole thing there with that kind of leads into these abuse allegations Mm -hmm. and coercion and a lot of stuff. Yeah. It's an interesting documentary. Did they ever release a statement after it? They did. The church did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The very last episode, like at the end of the documentary before the credits, they released a statement that basically said, you know, this is all absurd. Mm -hmm. We are not abusing children. There's a case of murder that came out of Remnant Fellowship, two members mm-hmm. that murdered their son. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, from neglect and abuse. Mm-hmm. They fucking locked him in a box. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Which the church, you know, flatly denies, like, encouraging its members to use corporal punishment and abuse on their children. Mm-hmm. Former members have come out and said differently, obviously. 
there's a very cult-like mentality as far as mm-hmm. controlling who you talk to, who you hang out with, what you post on social media, what kind of jobs you have, what how much you weigh, yeah, <laughs> how much you weigh, what you give to the church, like mm-hmm. it's very sketch and I think I mean, I hope that something come good comes of the documentary coming out, like, you know, maybe helping other people to get out. But um, they did put sort of a to be continued on it. Yeah. So I'm interested to see what the next uh, step in this this investigation is. Mm-hmm. I wonder if they're going to go into like post the plane accident. Yeah. You know, like what happened with as far as I'm aware, Remnant Fellowship is like still around, still mm-hmm. active. But yeah, that's that'll be really interesting. Yeah, it was definitely real fucking weird. <laughs> yeah, it was really fucking weird. So that's on HBO. It's called The Way Down, God, Greed, and the Cult of Gwen Shamblin. Definitely check it out. This is that part of the show where we say content may not be appropriate for all listeners. We're going to be talking about some heavy shit today, I think. Yes. <laughs> and also no. Yeah. Mine's a bit, I'll tell you straight up, mine's a bit of a history lesson. Mm-hmm. So mine, I'm excited. But... There's no blood and guts. Yeah. but Not really in mine neither. But you don't need it. No. Really. When you understand the history. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so we took a break in November because we both have a lot of schooly things to do. But I still wanted to talk about something that is important. Because if you're not aware, November is known as Native American Heritage Month or also American Indian and Alaskan Native Heritage Month, depending on who you talk to. <laughs> yeah. So I wanted to cover some crimes against indigenous peoples because it mostly came out of me researching this particular event that I'm covering today. I came across a book and some information for some research that I was doing for a small paper. I do I work with a group of art educators who specialize in like decolonizing and indigenous methodologies in oh, very cool. education. Very cool. So we um, fold in a lot of history sure. into what we do. So this kind of came out of me researching something and seeing it was cross-related. So we're going to travel across the border of Illinois into Wisconsin. Oh, please, please no. Please, <laughs> yep. dear God, no. Yep. Oh, God. We're going to be talking about the Wisconsin walleye wars. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> oh, God. I just, everybody needs to understand that we literally live half an hour from the border of Wisconsin. I mean, literally. Like, <laughs> literally can be there in half an I hour. I could spit. Yep. Yep. <laughs> now, if you're not familiar, Wisconsin does have a very big quantity of indigenous peoples living there. And you wouldn't really mm-hmm. know that because they're not in the cities. <laughs> and yeah. who goes to rural Wisconsin? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I do. True. I go to rural Wisconsin. So the land belongs to uh, the Ho-Chunk, the Menominee, the Ojibwe, the Anita, Potawatomi, Stockbridge, Munsee Band of Mohican Indians. Now, I want to point this list out as being post-contact. Okay. So previous to the 1700s, the complexities of the Great Lakes nations, I mean, you couldn't even make a map of that. There was so yeah. much inner mingling moving migration forced movement um right so the tribes continually shifted in and out of land due to all of this even war kind of changed it 
So, for example, the Mohican Muncie Band actually originated in the Hudson Valley, New York area, and were pushed out and then reestablished in Wisconsin. So it's really complex, and I could honestly spend its own entire podcast hours long explaining it. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But if you want to learn more and get an understanding, you can go to native-land.ca. And you will be able to put in any location. And actually, I think it's global now. It used to be just specific to the United States. Oh, cool. You can put in where you live or where you're visiting and see a map of treaties. You can okay. also see a map of what what land that would belong to, who. Yeah. Um, and they it's continually changing because as they do more and more research, they'll understand better all of these different migration patterns. So it's continually sure. changing. Okay. So you can find out exactly whose land you're on. Sure. And we'll be sure to put a link to that in the show notes, yes. too. They also have an app, too. Oh, so cool. You can just go Very on the app. Cool. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so today, there are 11 federally recognized tribes in Wisconsin. And the one that we will focus on is the, I always say it wrong, and I'm going to try so hard, the La Couture Band of Lake Superior Chippewa, also known as the Ojibwe people. So I'll refer to them as Ojibwe in most of this. Okay. There is also state-recognized. It's a little bit intricate. So there's federally recognized tribes, state-recognized tribes, and tribes who are not recognized by either entity. So also take that into consideration that there might be tribal groups that aren't federally recognized or state-recognized. Sure. Um, So there's always more than listed. So it's very important when you say there's this many number of tribes to differentiate what their status is. Okay. There are still tribes fighting to be recognized. Yeah. There's that whole mess. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So the Ojibwe call themselves Ash. Again, I I am more familiar with Cherokee, so this is going to be a struggle. Anishinaabeg. So you might see a variety of different terms used to refer to them. And like I said, I'm going to stick with Ojibwe because it's a nice in-between. Yeah. Because nobody really calls them Chippewa anymore. Because that's kind of a white people name. Good job, (laughs) white people. Yeah. It's fucking things up. Now, this tribe's reservation was forcibly established in 1854 by the Second Treaty of La Pointe. In a series of three treaties, the land was taken, but the tribe did maintain some rights on that land, like hunting and fishing. Very typical. However, due to the tribes being divided across four reservations, they were unable to sustain themselves with only hunting and fishing. The drastic shift forced a lot of the Ojibwe to sell land to white lumberjacks so that they could have money to survive. The land was not good to farm, so that was not an option for them. It wasn't until after World War II that the tribe started to bounce back economically. But, big caveat, during the same time, the rights that the tribe held for fishing and hunting were constantly being encroached upon. In 1901, John Blackbird was arrested for illegally fishing, and it went to court and was overturned. So a lot of these things were happening. Throughout the 40s and 50s, Ojibwe fishers were arrested for illegally fishing and had their equipment and catches confiscated, and then they were released. So a lot of times they would just take their stuff and send them on their way. So it went on like this until the 70s when things started to heat up between the Department of Natural Resources, the Ojibwe, and the state of Wisconsin. Oh boy. Okay. In 1974, a landmark case happened in the state of Washington, which is referred to as the Bolt Decision. This decision stated that effectively 50% of a harvestable catch should go to tribal nations. This effectively fully legitimized the power of hunting and fishing treaties for 
indigenous groups. Okay. So essentially guaranteeing that they will be able to take some of their cash. Some of what they rightfully deserve. (laughs) Right, right, yeah. So now back in Wisco, the Ojibwe started to exercise their fishing rights more and more around the same time. Now, if you remember some of the other episodes we've covered, I have discussed the rise of like Native activism. Yeah. And this was happening at the exact same time. So it plays a major factor in why the Wisconsin Walleye Wars got national coverage. (laughs) Okay. All right. Two members of the Lakutue band of the Ojibwe Nation crossed a reservation boundary that divided Chief Lake, cut a hole in the ice, and began to fish. They were arrested and taken to court. The tribe joined the legal fight on behalf of the two tribal members, contending that they had the right to fish off the reservation without restrictions because of the mid-19th century treaties made by the bands with the U.S. government. Okay. This court upheld the ban's treaty rights to traditional hunting and fishing throughout its former territories without regulation by the state. So this is talking about, like, the land that they used to be on but have since been, I'm sure, forcibly removed from. Yes. So they were removed from it, but they still had rights to fish and hunt on it. Okay. In the treaty. Okay. So the court upheld the treaty rights... And the state appealed, and the Seventh Court of Appeals decision also upheld the rights of the Ojibwe. So the state appealed again, but the United States Supreme Court declined to hear the state's argument to reverse the lower court decision. Okay. So that's good. Yes. (laughs) Yes. The Seventh Circuit sent the case back to the U.S. District Court with instructions for the court to determine the scope of the treaty rights and to resolve conflicts related to the regulation of off-reservation resources. So they're like, come on, man, help us out. We need some sort of guidelines so that we can keep fighting this. (laughs) And they're like, "Mm, no, it's okay. (laughs) So now we go forward a little bit to August 21st, 1987. The U.S. District Court Judge Barbara Crabb ruled that six Ojibwe tribal governments had the rights due to the federal treaties for hunting and fishing. Judge Crabb ruled the state could intervene to protect natural resources, but that tribes had the right to first establish their own regulatory system. Okay. So they had to prove that they could fish and still keep up without interfering in the natural scope of the river or the lake that they were fishing in. Okay, so sort of like a preservationist outlook yes. on like, yes, so long as you don't diminish any of the mm-hmm. natural resources. And so also like making sure that they had limitations. So we will only take this much. Okay. They could prevail if they showed the court system that they were actively protecting resources. After a scientific testimony, the judge okayed the natural resource code adopted by the six tribal governments, which allowed members to harvest walleye and other fish using traditional methods during the spawning season when the lakes are closed to state licensed anglers. So that's like a big thing. So they're allowed to basically fish off season, technically, according to the state. Okay. And they're using something that most sport fishermen aren't doing. So the Ojibwe are actually spear fishermen. Okay. So they're using spears to fish, and they fish in the dark, and they fish in aluminum boats with a single light on the end. Okay. So this is actually very traditional. Obviously, it wasn't aluminum before this. They would have carved out boats, but they would also light a torch and put it on the end. Because what happens is the light draws the fish to the boat. Okay. Kind of like a firefly or the sun coming up. And then they spear them. 
It's very simple, very safe. It's great to reduce over uh, fishing populated areas. And it, there's no waste. There's no netting. It's yeah. you're just like one fish at a time, basically. Yeah. So this is all well and good, but it's set off local local fishermen they were like absolutely not okay right (laughs) all right people thought that the courts were giving natives special privileges now i'm trying not to laugh oh my god Um, (laughs) yes they were getting special privileges to the land that was theirs (laughs) they were getting privileges that were already given to them and were were already put into treaties first Mm -hmm. oh my god okay Protesters took to the waters to stop the Ojibwe from fishing. They would block boats, um, something that I thought was very unsavory um, and kind of not great for the environment, is they would dump concrete walleye decoys. So they are big, huge concrete things shaped like a walleye. Okay. And they would sit in the river. And so when a fishing vessel would come upon it and think it was a fish, they'd spear it and break the spear. Oh, so basically oh, that's sabotage, sabotaging fishing vessels. Oh, geez. It's just, you know, they would steal people's boats. They would take motors. Like, it was a lot of fucking nefarious stuff that was happening. Wow. Now, the Ojibwe responded to the decoys in the river by announcing a contest, and they offered a $100 reward to the first Native person to retrieve a concrete walleye from a lake. Okay. So they were actively making sure people were going out there to take the walleye decoys out of the water. Sure. In addition to these tactics, protesters often resorted to physically assaulting and taunting fishers, often using racial slurs, and even going as far as one protester, and there's a picture of this if you want to look it up, who took a mannequin head, painted it brown, and put a feather headdress on it, which if you know anything about anything, headdresses aren't related to every single tribe. This particular band did not wear the feather headdresses that they put on. And that's just plain racism. Yeah. And then they put that mannequin head on the end of a spear. Not cool, guys. So literal pitchforks here, okay? Like literally people with pitchforks in a crowd. Oh my god. People exclaimed also that they were afraid because they they were fishing during spawning season, which means that there are female fish going upstream or wherever to go lay eggs. So they were exclaiming that they were taking too many female fish, which would cause an a decrease in the population. Okay. Now Tommy Thompson was elected in 19 governor in 1986 and he ran on a platform of abolishing Ojibwe treaty rights which is like what the fuck wow <laughs> so under Thompson's administration the Wisconsin Department of Justice tried unsuccessfully to appeal on many many decisions that were happening when that did not work, the state offered the Mole Lake Ojibwe 10 million dollars and the Lac du Flambe Ojibwe, $42 million if they would sign agreements with the state to end or at least suspend their rights to hunt and fish on ceded territories. Oh, God. They're like, we'll give you 42 mil if you just give it up. No, please tell so me I said no. both Ojibwe's refused. Oh, good. Okay, good. <laughs> now, at the same time, Republican Congressman Frank J. Brenner introduced legislation in the United States Congress to stop all off-reservation hunting, fishing, and harvesting rights in Wisconsin. Congress was like, no. Oh, my God. Which is surprising. Yeah. But. That's just like, "Mm." so, again, it's like, (laughs) 
dude, you're saying the quiet part out loud. Like, you're obviously targeting these specific people. Yes. Don't you know you're supposed to, like, quietly fold it into something that has way more, like, opposition so that they read through it and don't even see it? Duh. That's how it's supposed to work. Yeah. Have you (laughs) learned nothing from years of colonialism? (laughs) Right? You're not supposed to outright say we hate these people. Mm -hmm. Ugh. So, later in 1987, the Ojibwe declared that they would harvest 82,000 walleye. That was part of their thing that they had to do in state. This is how much we're going to take. In the end, all the Ojibwe bands in northern Wisconsin took only 21,321 walleye in that year. Okay. So, significantly less than they would normally do. Yeah. Now, non-Indigenous sport fishermen, in comparison, in that same year, took eight. 139,000 walleye from the lake during the same time. Literally. So who's overfishing? 10 times the estimated amount. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Moreover, all six Ojibwe bands run their own fish hatcheries. So they're putting fish back into the lakes every year. So they spearfish during the season that they're supposed to. Yeah. And they raise fish and put them back in. So that's part of the plan that they had to make sure that it was sustainable. Yeah. Meanwhile, you have all these sport fishermen not doing any sort of like Mm -hmm. conservation effort. Yep. Wow. I mean, if you're not aware, like most indigenous people, most indigenous groups have those types of things in place and have always had those types of things in place since the dawn of time. Sure. Because that's all part of the natural circle of existence. Right. (laughs) Yeah, right. You take only what you need. Oh my god. (laughs) Fucking people. (laughs) Yep. Don't you mean fucking white people? Fucking white people. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Yeah. So the violence reached a peak in 1989, and Governor Thompson personally went to the federal court to plead for injunction to stop <laughs> to stop Ojibwe spear fishermen to prevent further violence. Instead of stopping the people who were being violent, they're like, we need to stop them fishing because you see all of these clashes and all of this violence. Oh, <laughs> I, I, and I'm just like, no, nope. oh, that's so Mm-mm. frustrating. So back at it, Judge Barbara Crabb was like, uh uh-uh. uh. She refused because the Ojibwe were doing nothing illegal. Duh. So Crabb stated that this is it was not it was non-Indian protesters, not the Indians, who were initiating violence. Yeah. So she put her foot down. She's like, don't don't even come at me like that. Yeah. It's not no gonna happen fooled. here. You're mm-hmm. not fooling anybody. So in 1989, a pro-treaty group organized as the Midwest Treaty Network in support of the Ojibwe fishing families. Activists such as Walter Brissett of the Red Cliff Band from northern Wisconsin and Minneapolis uh, asked witnesses to document video the anti-Indian harassment and violence at boat landings to kind of prove that there was lots of racism and right. extreme have, violence going on. You want to have a paper trail on that instance exactly. to be like, look... Mm-hmm. Look. <laughs> now, between 1989 and 1990, protesters in the Ojibwe tribes clashed literally daily, daily at fishing spots. Gosh. News and radio would show up each day to catch the phrase. Groups like Stop the Treaty Abuse and Protect Americans' Rights and Resources actively engaged in campaigns to stop Ojibwe fishers from getting their catches. They even made fucking t shirts and hats and started brewing Stop Treaty Beer. 
which was sold to raise funds for their cause. That is like such a fucking Wisconsin it's thing. It's the most Wisconsin ever thing ever. Yeah. <laughs> well, we got Stop Treaty Beer and we got Stop Treaty Cheddar and you can buy both of them and support the cause. <laughs> <laughs> They're great for when your grandma's coming over to see you. <laughs> Oh, it's good for a Packers game. (laughs) Good for the Packers game. We got our Stop Treaty beer mm -hmm. over there. So they'd hold up signs uh, as well. Like, God, I'm already going to apologize for what I'm about to say. Signs would say things like, stop resource rape. And there was one that also referenced the genocidal phrase popularized by Richard Pratt that stated, if you kill the Indian, you save the man. Wow, that's fucked up. Yep, it's real fucked fucked up. up. Super duper fucked up. Oh, no. So Tom Molson, who was a Lac du Flambe treaty rights leader, led a fight against the protesters. And there was this dude who was on the other side, who was part of the Stop Treaty campaign. His name was Christ. Um, That's his last name, not his first name. (laughs) And Christ would go around talking to news media, and he would call... Tom Molson, a very interesting name. Now, I'm going to say this in my Wisconsin voice, so I'm prepared. This is cited in several articles. That guy is like the Jim Jones of Manaqua. Oh, God. <laughs> Jim Jones. What a comparison. So he was going around calling this guy the Jim Jones of Manaqua. Wow. Um, and it's in like all of these newspapers, and I just could not stop laughing when I saw it. Because this is like the late 80s and 90s. So like like Jonestown is like, "Mm -hmm." (laughs) oh, my God. Yeah. So as part of their fishing, um, the Ojibwe would pray and chant beforehand to give thanks, which is a very typical thing that you would do. Um, And this would often be disturbed by protesters who would blow whistles and try to steal drums from people's hands as they were going in procession. Rude. Um, while Molson uh, spearfished at a lake named Turtle Flambe, flowage in nearby Springstead in 1989, several rocks were hurled at him in the darkness from one of the islands. Ball bearings have been found uh, to be fired at people as well. And this is a quote from a newspaper. It's a shame that it has to be so vicious, Molson said. This is part of our heritage and... They want Indians to give up everything that is part of our heritage, and that's just not going to happen. So filmmaker Sandra Sunrise Asawa made a documentary film called Lighting the Seventh Fire, which chronicled the saga um, that she kind of made as she uh, observed all of this happening. And so I wanted to play it's like a one minute clip of her kind of explaining something about the documentary and her experience seeing all of this unfold okay. and you can watch this it's on pbs if you want to see the full one and i think there's some libraries that have it but it's kind of a, a really indie documentary sure sandy osawa producer i come from a fishing tribe my dad is a fisherman all my uncles were fishermen my interest is really in salmon and also the larger issue of how that affects our whole culture and keeps our culture together so it did not take much encouragement for me to go to Wisconsin and be interested in another tribe. Certainly one of the things that impressed me most when I was there was that I expected to see a lot of bitterness among Indian people. After all, they were stoned, a lot of them were shot at, um, their families were disrupted and often divided over these issues. 
And what was very inspiring to me was that there was a real lack of bitterness. Um, Walt Brissett, one of the people in our program, talks about, he says, well, yes, he said, the people here really don't hate us fundamentally, he, he said. He said, yes, they throw rocks at us, they throw stones at us, but he said they love this land. The non-Indian people love the land in Wisconsin. They are just misdirected in their love. Interesting. So that, I is... feel like that last part is like really important. Like mm-hmm. the acknowledgement that the, the effort is misdirected, mm-hmm. um, which I think is partly true. You know, I definitely right. think there is like this undercurrent of racism and hating the people. But, oh, for sure. <laughs> you know, and I, it, it, it is like important to kind of distinguish like not necessarily all about that and that it is just like a different. Mm-hmm. love for the land so i feel like i agree and disagree with that statement yeah. in the beginning of this entire saga in the late 70s i could definitely see that people were more concerned with the law and the of natural resources in the state yeah but as time wore on to the 80s it definitely shifted right into a campaign against indigenous rights yeah yeah if they would have just stuck to having signs about, you know, issues with natural resources and sharing, that'd be one thing. But they went into things that directly speak to genocide, that directly talk about violence towards indigenous peoples and mm-hmm. and their way of life, their culture. So it it's not. Yeah, I think that happens a lot in movements like this. And we see it now in movements in the current day where it like starts out as one thing and you have people that come in and kind of co-opt the message Mm -hmm. and it transforms into this very personal attack on race or gender or sexuality or culture or like like whatever it happens to be for for that. Like Mm -hmm. it just kind of transforms so i do agree with you because i th- I think it can just really easily happen depending on the type of movement that it is and can it can attract some of these like maybe not more nefarious third-party interests mm-hmm. that are more about like promoting whiteness than conserving land right yep. mm-hmm. yeah yeah so during the spring walleye spawning seasons of 1989, 1990, and 1991, they created a task force to kind of keep the violence to a minimum, and they were deploying hundreds of officers from around the state to help maintain order at the lakes. Now, the tides began to change as the 90s kind of drew on. Specifically, in April of 1990, the first day of spearfishing season the previous year, uh, Governor Tommy G. Thompson signed a bill authorizing a fine of as much as $1,000 for anyone preventing Ojibwe spearfishing. That was just to kind of stop people from being violent towards each other. Okay. At this time as well, Judge Crabb issued an adjunction against the Stop Treaty Abuse Group for physically harassing and blocking the exercise of treaty rights by the Lac Flandu Bambay and Jibways. Good. Also in 1991, the newly elected Wisconsin Attorney General James Doyle reached an agreement with the six tribes by which neither the state nor the Ojibwe would further appeal the federal court rulings. Okay. So... They already f- were in favor of the treaty, and they so they were saying that no- neither side will go against it and try to change it. Okay. 
I don't know why the Ojibwe would. It's in yeah. their favor, yeah. but sure. Well, I'm sure it's <laughs> it's more for the state to, mm-hmm. to just be like, listen, knock it off. Stop bringing this up. You've brought it up so many times. It's not changing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the Ojibwe have continued to work with the state of Wisconsin to reduce tensions and manage fish population in northern Wisconsin. In 1996, Wisconsin's six Ojibwe bands declared they would take 100% of the safe harvest of walleye on some lakes, which they were entitled to do by law. The state raised concerns that this would prohibit non-Indigenous sportsmen from fishing on 79 of the lakes, since no more fish could be taken out of them. So the Ojibwe voluntarily lowered their number of walleye that they would take from the lakes that year so that no lakes would be closed to sport fishing. So they 100% have the right to say, we're going to take all the fucking fish that's allowed out of here, so fuck off. But they didn't. It's strategically a good move because you don't necessarily want to inflare already kind of bad tensions between Mm -hmm. you and these these other people, right? So it is kind of like a show of good faith, right? Mm -hmm. You know. Yeah. So as a result of the protests, a team of federal, state, and tribal biologists formed this kind of joint assessment steering committee in 1990, and that was just to help analyze impact of sport fishing and spearfishing on walleye populations to kind of further prove a point as to whether or not them taking their treaty allotted amount was really doing anything. So... More than 20 years of research by the panel of fishery biologists has shown that walleye resources are not harmed by spring spearing, noting that only 9% of the tribal harvest is made up of females, because that was a big concern that they were taking too many of the females. And the Ojibwe have continued to work with the state of Wisconsin to reduce tensions and manage fish populations. So there was not much else being done and so the protesters just stopped after the news stopped showing up daily they just stopped okay um and after the 1991 um decision and the steering committee's results that came out that further proved that they were actually helping instead of hindering sure people kind of stopped yeah so Every once in a while, there's still some people who will bring up, like, treaty issues. But for the most part, the Ojibwe basically won, effectively, this fight against treaty rights. But, I mean, if we're going to be perfectly honest here, the entire thing is fucking stupid. (laughs) You know, like, we already took their land and now you're trying to take their rights to fucking fish yeah that nobody owns like nobody owns any of this well (laughs) we don't own the land like even even after like the um treaties were established and like the regulations were established and everything was all good for a while then they came back and they were like actually you -hmm. know let's try to take even more which is just a power thing it is it 100 Um, is yeah um i mean They'll, the state of Wisconsin will never, ever win in that because there are so many indigenous communities up there. Yeah. I mean, if you compare it to Illinois, that has like none. Yeah. Yeah. For a reason. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's the story of the <laughs> Wisconsin walleye wars. So every time you go up to a supper club in Wisconsin and you eat your fried walleye, your pan fried walleye, just think about this. Okay. Just think about where that walleye comes from and who it fucking belongs to. 
brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a Midi clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. So I have to admit that this was one of those topics that I was like, oh my God, where do I even start with this? <laughs> you mean every topic um, I ever pick? Because so <laughs> you normally go either super, super broad or like super, super narrow. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is one of these very broad things, which is actually not too bad. It, it leaves it open for a lot of, of choices, but like, mm-hmm. it's like, what do I really want to talk about here? And I think that even though this is going to be a bit more of like a history lesson than something I typically cover, I do think this is a really, really important piece of history. Mm -hmm. And so when we talk about indigenous people, we typically think of like mainland US, Canada, Alaska, Mm -hmm. those places. But I was kind of inspired by like literally everyone and their mother, including my own, going to Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to actually talk about the overthrow of the Hawaiian kingdom. Oh my God. I thought about doing this too. <laughs> <laughs> um, because it is just like another in a long line of examples of how oh the United God, States Vicky, really yes. done people dirty. <laughs> this is why I hesitate to eat pineapple. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you're familiar with I am. The overthrow yes. of the Hawaiian kingdom. I am. It's, it's, <laughs> I do really think it's like something that not a lot of people, especially on the mainland, mm-hmm. understand, no happened, no existed, that oh, Hawaii yeah. was just like not always a part of the US. Mm-hmm. And it's also the reason why I don't, I, I have not vacationed in Hawaii mm-hmm. because of the absolute abhorrent impact of vacationing in Hawaii has on yeah. the island and the people that live there. Yeah. I would love to go. Yeah. 
but I'm not going well, to. Well, <laughs> and part of it now, because just like culturally over hundreds of hundreds of years has become uh, reliant on tourist dollars, mm-hmm. you know, so. Yeah. Just, again, something to think about when you are, are visiting these places. I do think this is a really important story for people to be aware of. So let's get into it. Oh, I also want to say this is like this time period is very complicated. And there is a lot of moving parts behind the fall of the Hawaiian kingdom. So Mm -hmm. I did not include everything. Right. Every little piece. It's super complicated. It's complicated, super intricate, like a lot of factors contributed to this, to this. So I tried to get the big points. Mm-hmm. I will also say there's a lot of Hawaiian names. I did my best to practice and to get them all and listen and get them right. But we'll see. <laughs> We're just a couple of stupid howlies and we know yes, that. Yes. Which yeah. is a derogatory yeah. term for white people. Howly, yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so... The first people to settle in the Hawaiian islands were Polynesian voyagers who came there in the 8th century. I will say that's like 700 BC. Mm -hmm. I'll say this time period is a little contested now just due to advancements in anthropology and better dating on some of the islands. There is some question as to whether it actually happened a little bit later, but is around this time. Mm -hmm. So for much of this time... The Hawaiian Islands were made up of a dozen or so warring territories, largely isolated from the rest of the world. If you need to remind yourself, when you look, look at, at a map globe, of Hawaii, look at a globe more specifically it is in the middle of the ocean, the fucking ocean, away from everything, and especially at this time period when we didn't have planes, really long distance boats. Um, didn't months come until on a boat later, part. yeah, months on a boat. They were just like cut off from everybody and totally chill with that Mm -hmm. until the 1770s when European explorers began to visit the islands doing very European things like doing the colonizing, (laughs) also doing Doing the colonizing, colonizing. (laughs) doing very European things like setting up trade routes, routes and taking things that didn't belong to them. And of course, introducing diseases that completely demolished the isolated indigenous community. Yeah. Great. Thumbs down. Yeah. (laughs) There is huge impacts when you go to nations that have not had contact with outside people, Mm -hmm. with uh, with non-native people, like diseases that, you know, maybe... Has the pandemic taught us anything about communicable diseases? (laughs) Right. Something your body's not maybe used to Mm -hmm. will likely kill you. (laughs) for life. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) One of, one of the things that I, I learned about Hawaii in looking at all of this that I didn't realize is around this time, they started having a big leprosy problem mm-hmm. and had mul- later on had multiple like leper colonies in Hawaii because it was such a big issue. Anyway, besides the point. So the actual kingdom of Hawaii was established in 1795 after battles between chiefs vying for power in the 1780s and 1790s. King Kamehameha was the person who united the islands under one dynasty and ruled until about 1819. From there, Kamehameha II took over and was on the throne when Protestant missionaries showed up and converted everyone to Christianity. Fucking white people. So <laughs> the, the thing to remember is that when at this point in time, oh, a lot of things at this point in time, but... 
the big things. One, when you come in and you introduce something like a new religion, it very slowly erodes the indigenous culture and mm-hmm. practices and completely changes things for the indigenous communities. Mm-hmm. Or forcibly. <laughs> That's the other big thing is We're when Christianity was coming forcible. into these places, it wasn't just like, here, maybe this. It was like, we need to convert convert everyone to Christianity to make these people more civilized. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. That was always the idea. That and is literally what the phrase kill the Indian, save the man is out of. It's out yeah. of a stupid fucking churchy asshole who was like, yeah. well, if we kill all of the things that they are all about, then they'll just be a nice void man we can send to heaven. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, right. No. So the Protestant missionaries started showing up people began to sort of settle on the island. Um, Non-native folks were coming in and settling on the islands of Hawaii. And then in 1840, Kamehameha turned Hawaii into a constitutional monarchy when he signed the 1840 Constitution. It was about this time, like I said, Americans started hanging around the islands, meddling in public and political affairs, Mm -hmm. like usual. Fucking things up, per normal. Yeah. (laughs) They were, like, marrying Native people to get a leg up in, like, political offices and just and just fucking metal yeah yep. <laughs> just metal mm-hmm. um, with a d not a t yes <laughs> the kamehameha d- dynasty ended with the death of kamehameha the fifth because he did not name an heir a popular election was held that named luna lilo the next monarch mm-hmm. following his death only a year later another election was held between Kalakua and Emma, queen consort of Kamehameha IV. Riots broke out, causing the U.S. and Britain to send troops in in order to restore order. And King Kalakua was elected in 1874. Okay, so... That was a quick history. (laughs) Very quick history. Each Honestly, each of these monarchs, like, added something to the kingdom... A lot of them were about like preserving Hawaiian culture yes. and mm-hmm. trying to bring the Hawaiian culture with them into this sort of more modern era of trade and connecting with other countries mm-hmm. and really making sure that like the Hawaiian people were represented and not getting totally fucking shafted by these other other people that were coming into the island. Yeah. Uh, so mm-hmm. if you want to if you want to <laughs> know more about that. Definitely look into it. I'm actually going to include a link in the show notes to a YouTube. It's like a three-part series that somebody did. Very basic and easy to understand kind of cartoony animation stuff mm-hmm. about the dynasty of Kamehameha, which is kind of interesting. So during this time period, you have Europeans and Americans coming in, settling on the island, essentially since they found out it was there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they were like, score new place to take over Mm -hmm. what Um, resources do they have (laughs) oh my gosh sugar Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. hawaii became this really incredibly valuable set of islands like i said sugar became the major export out of hawaii with plantations going up as early as 1835 allowing hawaii to trade with the united states it's worth noting these plantations were typically bought by white businessmen who came on and bought these chunks of the land so like even though Hawaii was doing the trading, all of the profits were still going to 
white American business people. Mm-hmm. Dull. Looking <laughs> at you, motherfucker. <laughs> yeah. So the thing about this whole sugar trade was the United States was charging a way higher import tax on Hawaii than Hawaii was charging to the U.S. Mm -hmm. Which still fucks everything up today. Yes. (laughs) So Kamehameha III attempted to lower the tariffs that it was paying to the U.S. while still maintaining its independent sovereignty. Because part of the thing is like, if Hawaii were to become part of the U.S., you wouldn't have to worry about importing tariffs Mm -hmm. anymore because it's all one country. Um, theoretically yes theoretically (laughs) yeah theoretically i will say um, (laughs) you would of course have other issues to worry about at that point but he was really focused on trying to maintain the sovereignty so the u.s was like well maybe you could like give us one of your islands in exchange for tax-free importing okay sounds (laughs) like a backhanded black market deal (laughs) um so general started like visiting Hawaii to scout the islands, believing it was a valuable military resource for protection of the United States West Coast, which Mm -hmm. it is. Um, Kind of. (laughs) Kind of. And it was around this time that Pearl Harbor became the main focus for the U.S. government, Mm -hmm. who eventually began to try and pressure King Kalakua to surrender it to the Navy. And of course, Kalakua was worried that this would lead to the annexation of Hawaii And rightly so. (laughs) So he was kind of like trying to push off, you know, he didn't really want to just hand over this port to the United States Mm -hmm. because it is like once you start doing that, you give up some of your independence. You become more reliant on whoever has the military in your town. So all of this kind of sets the backdrop for multiple rebellions. Mm hmm. Okay. Where do we start? <laughs> yes. This was this was a really fun one to write, but like also really difficult because it's like, okay, what can I leave out? <laughs> like mm-hmm. it's all of it is so important, but it's a lot. It really yeah. is a lot. So in 1887, under the presidency of Grover Cleveland, the US began leasing Pearl Harbor from Hawaii. Then a group of non-Hawaiians establish a group called the Hawaiian Patriotic League and begin this rebellion of 1887. Mm-hmm. I know these names always get me because it's like fucking racist today being like, we're patriots. Yep. It's like, no, Mm-mm. sounds good, but like is not. <laughs> so under the leadership of the Hawaiian Minister of the Interior, Lauren Thurston, a new constitution was drafted and presented to Kalakua, who was forced to dismiss his cabinet members and sign it under threat of assassination. The Bayonet Constitution, as it came to be called, Mm -hmm. changed a few things. So first, it allowed the monarch to appoint cabinet members, but they could not be dismissed without approval from the legislature, which the legislature at this point was mainly made up of white businessmen. Mm -hmm. Voting eligibility now required candidates and voters to own property with a value of $3,000 or more and an annual income of at least $600. Seems high. Seems high. 
and we'll talk about that in a second. <laughs> the legislature became responsible for naturalizing citizens. So Americans could vote as citizens of the kingdom while retaining their home country citizenship, as well as running for office. So normally you would have to become a citizen of the nation that you are voting for. Mm -hmm. um, some Now they have like dual citizenships and stuff, but like you could just like move to Hawaii, not be a citizen of the country, continue maintaining your American citizenship and vote and run for office in Hawaii. Sounds so legit. What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> so these new rules very clearly benefited white foreign plantation owners while simultaneously disenfranchising two-thirds of Native Hawaiians. By requiring a, a monetary value of property to be owned in order to vote, you, like, knock out the entirety of the population of Native Hawaiians. Mm -hmm. Like, what the fuck? It's so... I... Uh, irritating. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> So in the meantime, all of this is happening. In the meantime, Secretary of State Thomas Bayard sent instructions to an American minister named George, George Merrill that the number one priority was to protect American commerce, lives, and property. If another rebellion were to arise, American military was to swoop in and restore the reign of law and respect for orderly government in Hawaii. Sure. This order that was sent is like often pointed to as sort of the thing that set the stage for what happens next it was the excuse they needed for what happens next <sighs> i know i told you it's going to be kind of like i know a little heavy today just know. <laughs> so following the bayonet constitution there were some obvious tensions between king kalakua and the legislature as you would expect of course and some folks within the government began plotting to overthrow him Kalakua's sister, Princess Lilo Uokalani, uh, Native Hawaiian officer Robert William Wilcox, and Sam Naulin planned to replace Kalakua with his sister. They had 300 Hawaiian conspirators hidden inside the Iolani barracks and the support of the Royal Guard, but their plot was discovered two days before it was to take place. And following this failed, what they called, they ended up calling it the Wilcox Rebellion. Wilcox was exiled from Hawaii. Mm -hmm. He was like, go away. So in 1889, Kalakua traveled to San Francisco in hopes of receiving better medical treatment, better health treatment. However, he died in 1891, leaving his sister, Leo Uokalani, uh, to replace him as the Hawaiian monarch. This was an interesting, um, just like an interesting little side fact. So obviously at this time period, they didn't have telephones, wire mm -hmm. communications, telegrams, like none of that stuff. So he goes away to San Francisco. And on the day that he's supposed to return, Hawaii is like gathering together for this huge celebration because nobody knew that he had already died like mm -hmm. a month or two earlier. So they didn't know until they saw the ship come into Harbor draped in black, um, like in a funerary mm -hmm. procession, like, I don't know. That just seems a little wild to me. Anyway, Princess Leo o o Lilo Uokalani. Lilo Uokalani. Lots of vowels. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now Queen Lilo Uokalani. She was incredibly unhappy with the Bayonet Constitution that was currently in place and wished to write a new constitution in hopes of returning the Hawaiian monarchy to its former power. 
part of the reason she she like kind she had been offered the monarchy a couple of times and was like kind of wanted it but kind of didn't because she really felt like the the way the monarchy was set up right now like the current monarch was a pushover mm-hmm. like whoever happened to be the monarch <laughs> yes exactly was a puppet and she didn't like that she wanted the power to be returned to the people and not this non-native legislature that had no interests of native hawaiian in mind at all so she in in 1893 with the support of the majority of the hawaiian population lilo uokalani wrote the 1893 constitution that would have done a few things um so it would increase suffrage by reducing property requirements it would eliminate the voting privileges extended to european and american residents so If you were not a a citizen of the kingdom, you were not allowed to vote in the elections. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. As it should be. Mm -hmm. And overall would strengthen the monarch relative to the legislature, which right now it was kind of the other way around. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, the legislature, which was made up of Euro-American business elites, was not super thrilled about this. And they withheld their support for the new constitution. Who would have thought? Right. (laughs) So this is when seven conspirators, five U.S. nationals, one English national, and one German national began plotting to overthrow the monarchy in an effort to annex it to the United States. Things kicked off when a revolutionist named John Good shot a native police officer who was attempting to stop a wagon of weapons getting to the committee. Now, they have this thing called the Committee of Safety also known as the Annexation Group. Mm-hmm. Um, when they're talking about safety, they're talking about safety for Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, of course. <laughs> yeah, it's one of these, the names of these groups. They're so misleading. Mm-hmm. Even now, people, just as a general like PSA, be wary of any group that has some name that's like overly positive, like yeah. Turning Point USA or... <laughs> The Freedom Caucus, or <laughs> I'm just saying. I wish just, there was a camera here so you could see all the faces I'm making. Yeah, Vicky, which she yeah. names all these fucking horrible groups. Sounds, sounds great in theory, but when you know what they actually do, right? it's like, oh, oh. When I heard Proud Boys, I thought it was just a bunch of awesome gay men. Yeah. And then it wasn't. <laughs> and then it was just the KKK. God right? damn it. <laughs> it KKK. So... So they were trying to get these weapons to the committee because of the shooting and fearing that the coup would be over before it started. The Committee of Safety, a.k.a. the Annexation Group, took over Ali Iolani Hale, which was like a building directly across the street from Iolani Palace, and deposed the queen. Now, in the meantime, to support the militia, the United States sends in the military. They send in the Navy um, to quote-unquote, protect Americans and American interests, mm-hmm. um, the Navy just shows up. Like they do all the time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> South America. <laughs> Central America. <laughs> Cuba. Um, <laughs> <I> keep going. <laughs> so the interesting thing in all of this to me is that even though there was like this invasion happening by the U.S., this militia uprising, this coup happening, the queen gets deposed, there was never any violence There was never any shots fired. Everything was very chill. And I totally credit the queen with this because she very much was like, I do not want the death of any people Mm -hmm. in the middle of all of this. So 
This is actually from the um, from the NEA website. Quote, on January 16th, 1893, United States troops invaded the Hawaiian kingdom without just cause, which led to a conditional surrender by the Hawaiian kingdom's executive monarch, Her Majesty Queen Lilo Uokalani, the following day. Her conditional surrender read. <laughs> um, okay, so this is what this is what she read. I, Lilo Okalani, by the grace of God and under the constitution of the Hawaiian kingdom, queen, do hereby solemnly protest against any and all acts done against myself and the constitutional government of the Hawaiian kingdom by certain persons claiming to have established a provisional government of and for this kingdom, that I yield to the superior force of the United States of America, whose minister, oh gosh, that's a <laughs> word I've never seen before. Sorry, whose minister... Plenty Potentiary, His Excellence John L. Stevens, has caused United States troops to be landed at, at Honolulu and declared that he would support the said provisional government. Now, to avoid any collision of armed forces and perhaps the loss of life, I do, under this protest and impelled by said force, yield my authority until such time as the government of the United States shall, upon the facts being presented to it, undo the action of its representatives and reinstate me in the authority, which I claim as the constitutional sovereign of the Hawaiian islands. So honestly, like super shitty. Mm-hmm. This militia mm-hmm. uprising came up. They decided to form a provisional government. The United States military came in and said, yeah, we're supporting that. The queen very um, safely and calmly kind of handed everything over in an effort to avoid death and violence. And I think handled it with a lot of class mm-hmm. because she wanted to protect the Hawaiian people and believed with the evidence presented to the United States government, they would see the error of their ways and abolish this provisional government and give them their kingdom back. Mm-hmm. I think if yeah. You know how many states there are currently? You know this never happened. <laughs> they would never get it back. Because it was ours now. Mm-hmm. Fucking, mm-hmm. oh God. Okay, so this all happens. <laughs> yep, <laughs> sure does. So before the United States just like straight up, straight up annexes Hawaii, President Cleveland actually orders an investigation into the overthrow to clarify the reasons for the rebellion and whether U.S. actions were justified. I also give him a lot of credit. I personally, I'll tell you, I don't know much about a ton about all of the presidents that have served, right? <laughs> right. President Cleveland is not one that I know a ton about mm-hmm. his administration. So he I might mean, have done a whole lot all of horrible psychopaths, other shit. But, yeah. you know, you have to be a psychopath to be president. Right. But for this, I do actually commend him a little bit because he was like, hold on a second. Did we really fuck this up? Like, are we going to try to cover this up and just pretend like it never happened? Or are we going to try to rectify the situation? So he concluded, quote, the military demonstration upon the soil of Honolulu was of itself an act of war, unless made either with the consent of the government of Hawaii or for the bona fide purpose of protecting the imperiled lives and property of citizens of the United States. But there is no pretense of any such consent on the part of the government of the queen, which at the time was undisputed and was both de facto and de jure government. In point of fact, the existing government, instead of requesting the presence of an armed force that protested against it, a candid and a thorough 
examination of the facts will force the conviction that the provisional government owes its existence to an armed invasion by the United States. Sounds about right. (laughs) So he basically came out and said, oh, we took that over. Yeah. (laughs) The only reason this provisional government is in place is because we supported the militia. Mm -hmm. And it was all done under protest by the queen, who has a legitimate claim to power. (laughs) I... The deeper you get into this, the more I'm like, this is so absurd. How could this have happened? But mm-hmm. it's par for the course. <sighs> so this provisional government that everyone keeps talking about was established by the Committee of Safety. Um, they had asked Sanford Dole to become president of the New Republic of Hawaii. I said fuck Dole and I meant it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he would eventually uh, become the first governor of Hawaii as well. Um, so he accepted. It became a republic in 1894. Cleveland attempted to demand the reinstatement of Queen Lilo Ukulani, which Dole was just like, no, I'm the pineapple king. No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cle- Cleveland was like, OK, guys, enough is enough. I'm like, the motherfucking power. president. Yeah. And he just said, no. Nah. Yeah. Meanwhile, back in Washington, a lot of this, this, the Senate and Congress, like sitting at the time, was pro annexation of Hawaii, and so they were like, "This report that Cleveland had done, it's all bullshit." Very reminiscent of some things that have happened in the last five years. This is all bullshit. Mm-hmm. Got their own researchers to write a pro annexation report refuting many of the claims that were in the original report. I hate everything about the government. <laughs> Janelle was just like writhing Anarchy. in her chair. Um, so they were like, this is bullshit. Here's our report that has the truth. Mm-hmm. In 1897, President William McKinley signed the Newlands Resolution, which set the annexation of Hawaii for January 7th, 1898. Indigenous Hawaiians were completely against the annexation. This whole time... Everybody, including their monarchy, was fighting for their sovereignty and mm-hmm. trying to remain independent from the United States. They did not. They didn't want any part of that. And I don't. Uh, I don't what blame good them. What has come of it? I don't blame them. Yeah. <laughs> None. So on the day of the annexation, they had this like huge um, celebration at Iolani Palace because that actually became the capital until sometime in the late sixties. So. They had all these people out at Iolani Palace. I would say almost none of them were indigenous Hawaiian uh, uh, people. Mm-hmm. They, in protest, instead shuttered themselves in their homes on the day of the celebration, including, including Queen Lilo Lukalani and her family. They were like, fuck this. Mm-hmm. And again, rightly so. Yeah. Many compared the day of the annexation to death. Yeah. And it was essentially the death of the Hawaiian culture. Mm-hmm. A new government was established in 1900s, and Hawaii has been a state ever since. Well, it officially became a state later, but yes, yes, <laughs> yes. But it, as in the early 1900s, mm-hmm. it was it, on in its way. Yeah. yeah, it belonged to the United States mm-hmm. by that point. Yeah. So, just like Puerto Rico. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So. That is, like I said, kind of just a very condensed history. There's a lot of players and a lot of contributing factors. Mm-hmm. But the U.S. done did Hawaii dirty 
and straight up was just does. like this is ours now <laughs> mm-hmm. and you had very few non-native people like fighting for the independence of hawaii because mm-hmm. it was far too lucrative and and you know you like militarily didn't want to give up that that piece of land because hawaii is also in between the western coast and japan mm-hmm. which as we know like future events of pearl harbor yeah Anyway, mm-hmm. so that's the fall of the Hawaiian kingdom. I highly encourage anybody to like look into Hawaiian history yeah. um, because I think there has been some chatter that I have heard from people who have visited recently about the sort of reticence or or unwillingness to listen to the United States government on some things. Oh, yeah. They're, they're trying to not become a state again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And again, like, Rightfully I so. <laughs> don't blame them necessarily mm-hmm. because, like, you just had people straight up come in and be like, this is ours now. Literally, it was like 2% of the beaches belong to Hawaiians. Yeah. 2%. Yeah. It's crazy. Not to mention, like, later on, like, <laughs> late, way later on, we used their fucking islands for bomb testing. Mm-hmm. Like, and completely damaged an entire ecosystem. Like, what? Yep. Guys. And that whole thing you you're talking stop? about with, like, importing and exporting. Yeah. There are still taxations on Hawaii. A jar of peanut butter, just like Alaska, is like 20 fucking dollars. Yes. They don't have, like, they don't have the means anymore to produce the things that they need. Mm-hmm. And they have to get it sent in from the United States. That's fucking bullshit right and part part of the annexation piece was like you know the, they they had so oh goodness okay <laughs> see this is why i'm like this is such a hard topic to cover in, in a little time period because there's it's so in-depth but you had one of the kings ca- okay hold on hold on hold on I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> These names are really hard to remember. <laughs> Kalakua mm-hmm. was like kind of a world traveler. And he was going out to all of these other governments, including the United States, to um, negotiate trading treaties, mm-hmm. to establish these connections. They had treaties with something like 90 different nations yeah. um, by the time that they were annexed by the United States. Mm-hmm. So part of this this negotiation with the United States to get the tariffs down had to do with um, them using Ford Island and later Pearl Harbor, right? Mm -hmm. That benefit to them basically went away as soon as they were annexed. Like there was no benefit to training with the United States after that. Mm -hmm. And so in that way too, like it really screwed over the Hawaiian people. Like they have not been able to reap the benefits of any of these exports because immediately it was like white business owners, white American and European business owners coming in and controlling the entire trade mm-hmm. while giving very little back to Yeah, to, you should look the at the, the list of the men on the legislators and yeah. you'll see they have their hands. They're very, all of them are fucking nefarious. Yeah. And they have their hands in so many other things that happened in, around that time. So it's just, it's fucked up. Not just Hawaii. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, Dole is a bastard. I, has Behind the Bastards done one on Dole? Maybe. I don't think they have. It's been a they minute should, since I've listened, but. If they haven't done one about Dole, oh my God. Yeah. You will never eat pineapple again. That's all I have to say. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's, yeah. Yeah. It's a lot. I really encourage you guys to look into it. 
I think if you end up going to Hawaii, take the time to go to their cultural sites and learn about their history. Yes. Do not stay in an all-inclusive resort, you fucking idiot. No. (laughs) No. It is, like, incredible how much they've been able to preserve. Yeah. I have friends who are native. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I love talking about it. And, um, yeah, it is just... It's something that's super ingrained. Yeah. And it's really interesting because the public schools definitely teach it down there, Mm -hmm. which is kind of like... You know, like a lot of schools around here, even in territories of like other tribal nations, mm-hmm. don't actively discuss it. It's changing now, yeah. but they don't actively discuss how the government in the United States have fucked them over. Yeah. But yeah, the public schools of Hawaii definitely do. I did like, listen. Literally, <laughs> and this is like my own ignorance, right? Like, I did not know that one, Hawaii was a kingdom before the United States took it over and that we really fucked them over, I would say, until the last probably five years of my life. Like Mm. learning about it recently, relatively recently, it is amazing to me. It is just incredible to me that we were so shitty. It just sounded like the house was about to blow over because of a storm outside. That was really ominous. Winter is um, coming. Yeah. Just kidding. It's so, fucking here. <laughs> you know, I encourage everybody to look into it because it is one of these histories of things in the United States that is not as well known. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very interesting. Um, so, yeah, that's <laughs> the brief history of uh, hopefully I did it. <laughs> hopefully I did it justice. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, definitely look into all of our research links. Like there's so much stuff and so many legal documents and videos mm-hmm. and stuff that are going to be included about all of this. That are super helpful resources if you want to uh, start your journey into looking mm-hmm. into this stuff. Yeah, I feel like, again, PBS, I think, did something on it. Yeah. Uh, uh, this episode is very like Ken Burns, you know? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This I would say this is not like a typical episode for us because it is a lot more like historical stuff. But in the history, there's also these massive crimes against the yes. indigenous nations yes. of, of, of uh, everywhere, like of literally everywhere. Yeah. So hopefully, you know, if this isn't your cup of tea, we'll be back to murder next week. But like, first of all, it is still crime. And how dare you? Yes. We're talking <laughs> war crimes. Yeah. God, not all crimes oh, are God. blood and guts, guys. Yeah. Most yeah. crimes are behind closed doors. Yes. yes. <laughs> uh, so before you run off and celebrate Thanksgiving. <laughs> before wait, you. This is after yeah, Thanksgiving. This is after Thanksgiving. <laughs> um, <laughs> Well, before you think about taking over an island already occupied by indigenous peoples with a government, before you start (laughs) talking about annexation, maybe listen to this podcast. Hi, I'm Lainey, host of the new podcast, We're All Just Pretending. It's a podcast that has elements of Dear Abby with a twist of post-secret. Every episode, I'll read listener questions and provide advice and insight as a friend. My own pod friends will even join in and offer their advice on parenting, relationships, and even give you really bad advice on purpose. Since we all have secrets to share, there'll also be a segment focusing on letting the skeletons out of your closet. If you're looking for advice or want to share a secret, head to allpretendingpod.com. And remember, we're all just pretending here. All right, so that has been another episode. Um, Janelle, you got anything for me today? I don't, Vicky. All right. <laughs> Just Pretty um, easy. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. So, <laughs> if you enjoyed this, a downer. <laughs> if you enjoyed this episode, you can find more like this at badtastepodcast.com, where we also have links to our merch store and donate page if you feel like supporting the show. 
we are so glad to be back in person. I know I'm still talking about it two weeks later, but like <laughs> she won't shut up about it. She <laughs> won't shut up. Would you just look at that? Um, no, it, it is great to be back. I think we have some exciting stuff coming in the in the next year. God, we're almost to like the end of the year. Yeah, that's gross. We better stop it. 2021 is almost over, guys. Yay. I don't know even. But know. also, I don't even know scary. anymore. I'm just saying myself to be like disappointed by every year, every year, every year. I guess that's growing up. I guess this is growing up. Yeah. <laughs> All right. On that note, <laughs> our sound and editing is by Tiff Fullman. Our music is by Jason Zashevsky, The Enigma. <laughs> one too many hypes this has been the bad taste crime podcast we will see you in two weeks goodbye Goodbye. aloha isn't aloha hello and goodbye it is all right aloha (laughs) it was as if a wave of evil washed over this town we are all people in some form or another Damn, I should have had more Hawaiian in there. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.